So I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Revelation chapter 12. We're going to look at the war behind the curtain this morning. And uh, I think we see it being played out throughout our world. Uh, We're seeing evidences of this cosmic war and uh, things that we're going to talk about this morning in uh, all of our news feeds and all the news channels and everything that's happening these days. But uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, Again, thank you for being here at Red Lane and we're excited to worship together in this service and then in the next service as well and asking God to do great things in our midst. Well, I know things are different in Virginia. I guess they're different around the country and we look different all the time, especially uh, since Friday now that we're wearing masks. And But here, there is some good things that are happening. We're starting to see a little bit of reopening in our state. We're seeing businesses trying to move in that direction and we're all trying to move to some sort of uh, normalcy, and I, I don't like the term new normal, uh, other than let's talk about it from a spiritual context. We don't want to move back to complacency, but we want to be hot for the Lord. But I really do believe we need to move back to normal living, living uh, just our lives and enjoying our lives and enjoying the blessings that God gives us and, and enjoying relationships. We're moving in that direction. And part of that is what we're seeing is that businesses are beginning to reopen little by little. And so we're getting to move back to some sense of normalcy. And most of what we love to do, some of our favorite things that we love to do is to shop and to eat, right? We want to go shopping. Oh, some of you ladies are just chomping at the bit. Man, I want TJ Maxx open. I can't wait to go to the mall. And all the stores are open, not just you know, the ones that you don't really go to very often, but all the stores are open, or you want to go to your favorite restaurant and not have to wait two hours for that one of those three seats that's on the patio. We want to enjoy food. Amen. We want to enjoy fellowship with people and enjoy shopping. Well, those are not necessarily shopping per se, but I do enjoy some aspects of shopping. I definitely love to eat. But one of my favorite stores, and this is no surprise if you know me very well, one of my favorite stores, if not the favorite store in all of the world for me is Bass Pro Shops. Can I get an amen? That's right. Cabela's, Bass Pro doesn't matter. Absolutely love that store or stores like it. In fact, I grew up in Arkansas, Northwest Arkansas, which is two hours drive from Springfield, Missouri. And their first store ever for Bass Pro Shops is right there in Springfield, Missouri. It is a gigantic store, just a magnificent, massive store there with a huge aquarium. I mean, it dwarfs all of the aquariums in these smaller Bass Pros uh, 10 to 1. Uh, there's all kinds of other small pools and streams running throughout the facility. There is uh, multiple restaurants, a museum, and of course, all of the departments for the outdoorsman to, to get his outdoorsman on, right? I mean, boats and fishing gear and hunting and camping and you name it. There's even stuff for the ladies and, and just everyday wear and all of that. I love it. And so we used to go there as a kid. In fact, I was in, in ninth grade at my junior high. We had the very first fishing club in the entire country. And one of the things we did as a fishing club, like two or 300 students in my junior high, seventh through ninth grade, we got on buses one Saturday morning and they took us to Bass Pro for the whole day. Just kids running around Bass Pro. It was fabulous. I mean, it was like a dream come true for me in that point in my life. And so I've always just wanted to be the fly on the wall to kind of see how things work at Bass Pro. How does this big, magnificent store uh, operate? How do they clean the tanks? How do they, I see sometimes them feeding the fish, but I want to see all of it. I want to see every little thing. I want to have a peek behind the curtain. And so if you're personal friends with Johnny Morris, who founded and owns uh, Bass Pro Shops, 
give a little word in for me so that I can get that behind-the-scenes look at the store in Springfield. Anybody like that? Probably, I didn't think so. Revelation chapter 12, we're getting this sort of thing happening. We're seeing a peek behind the curtain. As you've been with us, you've, you know that through the first 11 chapters, the Lord has revealed aspects of this cosmic war that is and will continue to be waged against those who pursue evil. And we've witnessed the breaking of the seven seals of the scroll and all of the preliminary judgments that come along with them. We've also heard the blowing of the seven trumpets and, and the horrific judgments that follow them as well. Now, before we move into the description of the seven bowls of wrath, which we will see in chapter 16, the Lord is going to more fully show us in chapters 12 and 13 the major characters in this drama. The major characters behind the scenes that's fueling all of the, the turmoil, all of the war, all of the conflict that's spilling over into history. And so it's almost like the Lord parts the curtain that separates earth from heaven to depict a great war being waged in the spiritual realm. Here in chapter 12, this war is going to be unfolded before us in mythological terms. And so let's look at what God has to say here. Revelation chapter 12. Verse 1 says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when, he, and when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, and he stood on the sand of the sea. As we read this, 
incredible story, obviously mythological type of language, one of the central themes of Revelation really begins to come to the top. This revelation or this struggle, I should say, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan. We see the two clashing all throughout the revelation. This struggle, better yet, this war is a heavenly reality with earthly consequences. It's spilling over into history. And this should not surprise us because the New Testament tells us that as the church, we as the people of God will experience persecution. We will and should experience and should expect suffering to be part of our lives because the spiritual warfare taking place between these two kingdoms will and is affecting the church. Satan is always seeking to frustrate the plans of God. That's what he's always doing. He's always seeking to thwart what, what, what God is doing, what God is moving, and where God is moving. He's going to do this all the way up to the end. In fact, at the end, the eschaton as we've been calling it, he's going to continue to do this. He's going to seek to gain universal power from all of the peoples, demand the worship of all men, and inflict martyrdom on all who would remain loyal to Christ. So before his evil plans are more fully described, John here presents this spiritual struggle, struggle through a mythological scene. I don't know about you, but when you when I read this chapter, it sounds very similar to something we might read from Greek mythology or one of those stories from antiquity. And so that's this mythological scene that's taking place here. These events that we discover in this chapter are not part of a vision of things to take place of the end. So that I think we need to keep that in perspective. As we read this, this is not a snapshot of something particularly to come in the future as far as uh, some historical event. Instead, it is a vision, as Ladd describes, in highly imaginative terms of the heavenly warfare between God and Satan. This is a way for God, in His Word, to show us a picture of what this spiritual conflict looks like in a way that we can understand, in a way that gains our attention and moves us emotionally to do something spiritually. And so this war does has as its counterpart in history the conflict between the church and the demonic evil. So it's not a snapshot of something particularly in history, but it does speak of what happens as the war in the spiritual realm plays itself out in history in the realm of human life. So this vision transcends the usual categories of time and space. It's a mythological vision. So this is not a foretelling, as I've said, of history, but a representation of the struggle in the spiritual realm, which lies behind history. So you understand what we're reading here. This is one of those difficult passages that for me, reading it over the years, I'm thinking, how does this fit in all the things that are happening, all the things that we've read before, what we're going to read after, sort of sandwiched in between this. It's one of those interludes that we've seen thus far. So let's just walk through the text, and then I want to give you three things by way of application that we as the church, we as believers need to be aware of and apply in our lives. So look at verse 1. He sees a great sign. It appears in heaven. This vision initially is going to be played out in heaven. Then it's going to move to earth in the latter verses of chapter 12. So he sees this great sign. And the great sign is a woman. She is a 
woman clothed with the sun. She has the moon under her feet, and she wears a crown with 12 stars. In other words, what John is seeing here is a glorious, majestic, beautiful woman, this symbol in the heavens. She wears this crown. She has 12 stars on the crown. It speaks of her stunning, majestic glory. And so she's also, he says, pregnant. In fact, she's not just pregnant. She's on the cusp of giving birth. She's crying with the birth pains. And then John quickly sees another sign. This sign is a great red dragon. And he's there crouching before the woman about to receive the child that she's going to bear. But he talks us, tells us a little bit about this dragon. He says that he has seven heads and he has ten horns. I mean, just think about what this, this image would, would look like. We've seen movies. We've seen pictures where, where uh, artists and, and movie developers have, have configured or, or portrayed for us monsters like this. And they're terrifying. They're, they're, they're overwhelming in their power. And so this one has seven heads. It has ten horns. In fact, this is not the first time that we've seen this sort of depiction of a creature like this. In fact, we find it multiple times throughout the Old Testament. He's referred to, or this creature is referred to as the Leviathan, or Rahab, or the Behemoth, or it's spoken of as the sea monster. So who is this dragon? What is this dragon? John identifies it for us in verse 9. He tells us that it is, this, it is that old ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan. He pulls in imagery from Genesis chapter 3 where it tells us that the serpent came and began to deceive. The serpent has seven heads with seven crowns. These seven heads and seven crowns suggest the degree of power that the dragon was permitted to exercise. You know that seven in the Bible speaks of fullness. And so the number seven, along with these ten horns, which take us back to Daniel 7 and the beast that we see there, speak of and reveal that Satan's power is great. This power is further seen in verse 4 and how he takes his tail and he sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. All that the image is doing there for us is this. It's just to show us one other example of the greatness and the power that this beast has. Seven heads, ten horns, speaking of fullness of power, and then he takes his tail and sweeps the heavens and removes the stars, a third of them, from their natural positions. It's powerful. This massive dragon stands then before the woman as she gives birth John tells us that his plan is immediately to take the child and to destroy the child. But as soon as this male child is born, the one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron, as soon as he is born, he's caught up to God in his throne according to verse 5. And so we begin to ask the question, who is the woman and who is this child? I don't think it's a hard stretch for us to figure out who the child is, right? It's Jesus. It's the Messiah, better yet. It's the Christ. It's the anointed one. It's the one who's going to put bring defeat to the serpent, going to bring defeat to the dragon. And as soon as he is born, he's caught up to God and to his throne. And so, therefore, what we see here, we don't need to read into it in this idea of this. This is a historical picture of the death, or I should say the birth of Jesus, then the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. It's just a picture of the the Messiah coming, the anointing coming, the spiritual warfare taking place there, and then God's provision to watch over and protect His own. And so who is the woman? Many would say that she's Mary. 
I would say that it's not a picture of Maria for a few reasons. Number one, this is a vision in heaven. It's not a vision on earth at this point. Mary gave birth to Jesus on earth. And so who is the woman? I think it's better for us to interpret and understand this woman as the ideal Zion or the ideal people of God, the ideal church through which the people of God has the Messiah come. And then we're going to see as we move on to the latter verses of this chapter, her other offspring are the people of God, those who have put their faith and trust in the Messiah. And so the woman is the ideal church in heaven, and her offspring are the actual historical people of God on earth who are persecuted by the dragon. In this, we see the sovereign protection given to this child. What we see here is a vivid display of God's protection, God's victory over every satanic effort to destroy him. Haven't we seen that already? Everything, even in the seven letters to the churches over and over again, that Jesus is saying to John to say to these churches that there's evil working against you, but God is in control of it. So we've seen this over and over and over again. And here again in chapter 12, as the serpent, as the dragon is seeking to destroy the child, God is in control and takes him to safety. He even protects the woman in verse 6. The woman flees, flees into the wilderness where she is, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. And so God is going to nourish her there for the three and a half years. This time reference has already been mentioned a couple times in the Revelation. It's a reminder that even in the midst of the most severe trouble, God will preserve the heavenly woman. In other words, God will preserve his people. I've told you that my, the way I interpret Revelation, the way I believe we should interpret Revelation, is that not that God takes the church out of the world during the tri- great tribulation, but that God preserves the church through the tribulation. And this is another aspect of God's preservating, preservating, is that a word? Preserving hand of God preservating. I'm going to call Webster when I get done here and submit that word. So the war against God's people now is going to take place. It's going to take place because the war is being waged uh, between God's kingdom and Satan's kingdom. That's what we begin to see in verse 7. Verse 7 tells us that this battle is going on in heaven. Who's it going on between? Michael and his angels are battling Satan and his angels. Great cosmic conflict is taking place in the heavens between these two kingdoms. Dragon, John sees, is defeated. He is thrown out of heaven. Here we should not attempt to place this battle, again, chronologically somewhere in history. That's not the intent of this vision. The simple intent is to assure those who meet satanic evil on earth that it's really nothing more than a defeated power, a defeated foe, however fierce, however dangerous it may seem. So the victory over Satan, John tells us, comes through the blood of the Lamb. It comes through the cross. The victory is not won because Michael and his angels are stronger than, than Satan and his demons. That's not where their victory is. We don't put our trust in Michael or Gabriel or any of the angelic beings of heaven. We put our trust, this is a place for you to say amen, I'm just preparing you. We put our trust in Jesus. Our trust is in the blood shed on the cross. Our blood is in the, in the empty tomb today. Our trust is in Jesus who was resurrected and is coming back. 
Thank you. Boy, I prepared you and you almost missed it. You were a rowdy bunch. I think I've already put you to sleep, but wake up. Let's go. And so John here, I love how he's just over and over in this vision, is seeing things to encourage him in his faith, thus giving us encouragement as well. The victory here that we're seeing over Satan is also, John tells us, over the devil. And so we have these synonymous names. And then John's going to tell us a little bit about this, or I should say the loud voices in heaven that begin, begin to speak are telling us a little about about this Satan or about this devil. He's the one who is our adversary. That's what those names mean. They're synonymous. They mean adversary. They mean the one who stands against God, who stands against the people of God. And then in that opposition, what does the devil do? He accuses us before God the Father. And any of us who are standing in our sin, separated from God, he has just right he has the justice or the or, or the the author of the authority in everything he needs to stand before God and accuse us because we are guilty. But when we are in Christ, the blood that that gives us victory strips him of any and all authority that the devil has to stand before God and accuse us. I mean, John or Paul says in Romans chapter eight, now there is now there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. And so we've been given victory. The devil has lost his authority over us, but he is the accuser. He is the one who is the deceiver, he goes on to say. And so he opposes, accusing, deceiving every single person who's ever lived. And that is what he has done. That's what he will continue to do. But praise God that Jesus' death and his resurrection has defeated our enemy. His power, His dominion have been thrown down. But here's what we see, is He doesn't stop. Satan is a defeated foe, but He does not stop. There will be a day that we're going to see in Revelation 20 when the devil will stop, and he will stop only because God fully stops him, throws him into the lake of fire. But until that moment, even though he is a defeated foe, Jesus defeated him on the cross, he still wars against God, he still wars against the people of God, and he's doing everything he can to frustrate the plans of God in this world. The Bible tells us here that his wrath is great. Verse 12 tells us that, that, that he's no longer in heaven, but he's gone down to the earth. And so he tells the earth and the sea to beware of the great wrath of the devil that is coming. Why does he have great wrath? He understands his time is short. He knows that he's not an eternal being. He knows that he's not going to be able to do what he's doing for all of eternity. There is a time clock ticking on behalf of of his war. So this war being waged is against the church. It's further portrayed in that light as the dragon now is going to pursue the woman on the earth. So the vision is moving from heaven. Now it's on the earth. And so the devil's defeated, but he's going to go after the woman. And look what he does here. The woman runs into the wilderness, better yet she flies into the wilderness. God gives her the, the wings of an eagle. I assume in the vision, she's seeking to flee and the wings of an eagle just sort of pop out on her. She begins to fly away where God nourishes her. But he doesn't stop. Here's what we see over and over again. The devil is relentless in his pursuit of God's people. You need to know that. That's not even one of our truths I'm going to show you in a moment, but I should have put that as one of those truths. The devil is relentless in his pursuit of your life. He wants, what does John 10, 10, John 10, 10 tell us? That he is a Thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Relentlessly doing that 
in your life. He's relentlessly pursuing this woman. She gives, she's given the wings of an eagle. She flies away. And so in order to overtake her, he sends a flood. God comes to her aid and the earth soaks up the water or swallows up the water. And so having been defeated there, now he turns away from the woman and he begins to pursue her other offspring. John tells us those who keep the commandments and hold to the testimony of Jesus. How does he pursue them? Any way he can. Any way he can, he seeks to destroy the people of God and the plans of God. And so this mythological story here ends, and as it does so, we wonder what happened to the offspring of the woman. Verse 11 gives us a clue. They conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love, verse 12, not their lives even unto death. I should say verse 11. And so what's happening here? As we move closer and closer to the eschaton, as we look at the eschaton specifically, every follower of Jesus Christ will face severe persecution. They will be persecuted by Satan and by his demons, by the world system that he has set up. So all these, all these things all of these things that he institutes will make it impossible to follow Jesus, to proclaim his gospel without facing the fiery persecution of the enemy, without facing the fiery retribution of the kingdom of Satan. That's why we're going to see more and more of these things play out, and the retribution, the fury, and the vitriol will all intensify because he's going to war against the people of God. But the redeemed of the Lord will stand. They will stand in the midst of the fiery trials. They will boldly and graciously continue to proclaim the gospel. That's what he says. They overcome him by the blood of the lamb, that's the cross, and by the word of their testimony. We overcome the devil's uh, war in our life by standing on the gospel and continuing to proclaim it. As we continue to say, you know what? I don't care what you bring against me, devil. I don't care what you bring against me, world. I believe that the only hope for my life and the only hope for anyone else's life is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so believers are going to continue to stand in that day as hell is being unleashed on them and they will proclaim the gospel. Many will be martyred for their faith. All will be persecuted. But not all will die. Right? And so they will overcome the enemy through the word of their testimonies. They continue to hold to the gospel. This peak that we're given here behind the curtain in chapter 12 is a great reminder of three things that I want to bring to your attention. Things that we need to keep in mind as we anticipate the Lord's return soon. Number one, war is being waged in the spiritual realm between the kingdoms of God and of Satan. I just want to ask you a question real quick. Do we believe in spiritual warfare? Do we really believe in it though? I mean, do, do we understand how it influences us, how it influences the things around us? I was fishing yesterday morning. Can I get an amen for that? But I, we were talking, me and the other guy that I was fishing with, and we were, I just got on talking about what we're, gonna, what we're looking at this morning. And I, I just made this statement. I don't see a devil under every rock, but there's a devil under every rock. Think about what I just said. It doesn't mean that the devil or demons are, are actually personally involved or possessing every single person or, or they're 
orchestrating, even though they're there orchestrating. The devil doesn't have to do a lot of stuff most of the time. The worldly system's already set up to do that. We already have a fleshly body that we live in. We already have the propensity to sin, the propensity to walk in rebellion, the desire to do so. All he's got to do is kind of fan the flames. You see, what's happening in our country right now with all these riots going on, the demonic world is just standing there whispering, hey, if you'd go do this, or hey, you're not getting this. You're just whispering here and there, and people are following their natural propensities, their natural tendencies, and acting out. Anger, hatred, fighting, all of those things, murder, all of those things are happening. Now, does that mean that he doesn't possess people or he doesn't personally get involved in those things. That doesn't mean that at all. It just means there there are times when he doesn't have to do that. The system's already set up to make that a possibility. But he is there. And so this war is being waged in the spiritual realm between the kingdoms of God and the kingdom of Satan. Satan has been at war with God since the day he rebelled, since the day he sought to take the throne. It is an all-out fight. However, it's what we see here is that it is not a fair fight. Thank God for that. Thank God that when we look at what's happening in our own lives, our family, our culture, that we don't have to wonder whether or not our God is going to win in the end. I mean, sometimes, I don't know if you like fighting. I'm not, boxing's kind of lost its luster in, in our culture. I, I like UFC, that type of fighting myself. And so when I'm watching a match, I may know a little bit about the person that's taking on the other person, but you never know really how it's going to work out. One wrong move here and there, and you're in an arm bar, and you're done, right? Three seconds into the, maybe not three seconds, 30 seconds into the fight, the guy that you thought was going to win is, is no more. He's tapping out. That's not the, the, the fear that we have. Our God is winning, and he has won. Satan is not God's equal comp- competitor. There's no, there's no concept of dualism in the Revelation. There's no teaching of dualism in the entire Word of God. In other words, what I mean by that is God and Satan are not setting on equal ground. God is the creator. Satan is a created being. He is lesser. If we're going to look for some sort of dualism, John gives it right there when he says Michael is waging war against against Satan. There's the dualism. Both are angelic type of beings. Both are created by God. And so Satan nowhere can topple the sovereignty of Almighty God. That's why when I read, I'm golly, I got to quit. I'm almost out of time. Good night. That's why when I read, and I don't read a lot of um, mythology and stuff like that, but I like those movies. And so when you read any, really any type of religion, that has plurality of gods, I just laugh at that. I'm thinking, these are not gods. These are just humans that we have said are gods because they have the same fickleness. They have the same tendencies, the selfishness, and and none of them are a true supreme being. But the God of the Bible has no rival. He just voices a word and it's over. Verse 7 would lead us to believe that Satan is equal to, to Michael, as I've said not to God. So consequently, the battle is being fought by the angels, and the battle is fierce, which leads us to a second truth. I'm going to do this quickly. The spiritual war in heaven spills over into history and impacts the earthly experience of man. See, the defeat of Satan in heaven results in his wrath being unleashed, as I said earlier from verse 12. The victory won on the cross, defeated Satan, but he has not yet been destroyed. That's coming, or at least he's going to be bound for the rest of eternity. 
He knows, though, that his final doom is sealed. It's not like he doesn't know that. John tells us he knows his time is short. So for the time being, he's still allowed to exercise his great power. So what does he do with that great power? He attacks the church. He seeks to frustrate the plans of God everywhere and anywhere he can. He seeks to instill fear and, if possible, bring believers to martyrdom with the hopes that they will deny their faith. I even, we got onto a conversation yesterday in our, um, in our fishing time. Uh, we were talking about this whole spiritual realm thing. And so we we're talking about demons. And he, I was asked, you, have you ever seen a demon? I was like, you know, I think I have. I'm not sure, but I think I have. I mean, if you push me in a corner, I'd say that was absolutely a demon. I've seen demon-possessed people overseas in other contexts. Um, but I went on to make a statement. I was like, I do believe demonic activity is very, very prevalent. It just looks different in different places. And I said, one of the things I see, and I can't, do, I can't prove this, but one of the things that I see in, in the way that he works is that he seeks to create fear in our lives however he can and as early as he can. And I've just seen in my own family, and even looking back in my own life as a child, when kids wake up with panics and just uh, night terrors, I just ask the question, what is that all about? I remember having them as a kid and absolutely out of my mind, couldn't understand, couldn't talk, scared to death, not even really realizing what I'm scared about, other than I feel felt or, or saw something that terrified me. And I just look at that and I say, that is demonic activity trying to create fear in a child's life. Therefore, we as parents, Christian parents, ought to be praying for our kids, praying over our kids, and claiming the victory that we have in Jesus for our kids. So he's going to do everything he can to frustrate the work of God. We're seeing it. I don't want to be political or anything but the havoc that we're seeing in these cities across our nation, first of all, it started because something was atrocious, right? But we don't act, we don't burn things down because uh, one bad thing was done. And so what's happening here? The enemy is fueling the flame or fanning the flame. He's behind every evil in this world. What is he doing today? He's seeking to spread hatred. He's speaking, seeking to spread racism and cynicism and jealousy and skepticism. He works to enslave men and women to drug addiction and alcoholism and sexual immorality. He's behind every domestic abuse, every domestic disturbance. He's behind the bullying in schools. And he's also behind the sexual abuse and anything else you could put there that's something that's detrimental to us in our health. He seeks to stop the church any way he can, even death if possible, as we continue to read the book of Revelation. He is behind every church shooting. Every evil in this world is fueled by hell. But regardless of that, God is in control. Brings us to a third point really quick. The people of God are preserved through great tribulation. As the dragon at the end of the chapter begins to pursue the woman, we looked at earlier, we saw that she's given the wings of an eagle. She flies away. She's nourished for three and a half years. He attempts to drown her, but the earth swallows up the water. And so Revelation here reveals that there's going to be a time of great tribulation. It's going to be a time of immense pain. It's going to be a time of incredible suffering. It's going to be a time of death for the church. People, the people of God will be killed and slaughtered by the tens of thousands Satan will do everything in his power to destroy God's people, but his work will be in vain. You say, well, he's killing people. Surely he's getting the upper hand. No, he's actually strangling himself even that much more with every person he kills. You see, it's happened over and over and over again throughout the centuries. 
It's been said this way, the seed of the church is the blood of the martyrs. Every time a Christian is killed, every time a church is burned down, every time the enemy seeks to stamp out the presence of God in a culture, all he does is spread it. It happened there at the very beginning, there at the early church, when the persecution ramped up in Jerusalem and the people of God began to scatter. They didn't scatter to hide in caves and to hide in their houses. They scattered proclaiming the gospel of God. Philip, who's a deacon, goes down to Samaria and preaches the gospel and the city comes to Christ. He's ushered in to another road and shares the gospel with an Ethiopian eunuch who takes the gospel to Africa. And so the blood of the martyrs, the persecution against the church, spreads the gospel, and God is glorified. Thank you for that one clap. So the persecution is going to be intense, but God is in control. He preserves His people through the midst of the fires. That's why we, I believe that we as the people of God should not fear whatever may come against us. None of us want to go through the Great Tribulation. Anybody want to sign up for that today? I mean, if we were to sign up, we'd probably get more people to sign up for a prayer meeting than to say, I want to go through the Tribulation. And I don't want to go through the Tribulation. That was a joke, by the way. I'm glad a couple of you got that. But we shouldn't fear that. God will preserve His people no matter what. You may die. You may lose your life. What a glorious way to go out. Standing there. You know, I shared with you, again, uh, the story of Polycarp in Smyrna. Is he standing there being burned at the stake? He says, 85, 86 years I've lived for him. Uh, he's never denied me. How could I deny him now? And, and church lore tells us that when he was burned at the stake, it smelled of a sweet aroma. I don't know if it really did or not, but that's what history, tradition tells us. It's an offering back unto the Lord. What a great way to go out. So in chapter 12, real, as we close here, catch a glimpse behind the curtain. Reminds me of a classic movie, 1939 movie, The Wizard of Oz. Anybody ever seen that movie? Of course, we all have. It's my sister's favorite movie of all time. She collects all that stuff. It's amazing. You get to the end of The Wizard of Oz, and if you know the story, you know what's going on there. Dorothy and her little dog Toto are trying to get back home to Kansas. And they've been told, or she's been told, if you'll go to Oz and you'll speak to the great wizard, he can get you there. Well, they get to Oz, and, and he tells them to go do some more stuff, and, and to come back. They do that, and they come back to Oz, and, and, and he's fearful, and he's got this great picture and voice and all these things. Well, Somehow, some way, the curtain begins to move, and what they begin to see is this regular dude standing behind the curtain, pushing, pulling all these levers and buttons, speaking into a microphone, and they realize that what they're seeing is so scary. It's not scary at all. It's just a common person behind the curtain. This morning, as we read Revelation 12, and we see what's going on here behind the curtain, God is not the Wizard of Oz who's just putting on a show. God is sovereignly in control. He's sovereignly powerful over all things. We see that Satan also, as large as he may be, the grand dragon who sweeps stars out of the sky, as fearful as he may look, is actually the wizard behind the curtain. Even though he is powerful and he is dangerous, he is a defeated foe. The battle is going to continue to be waged on earth. Because there is this battle being waged in the spiritual realm. But because of Jesus, we have 
victory. John tells us here that they overcame the dragon by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. This morning, is victory present in your life because of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have victory over the enemy because you have a testimony of Jesus changing your life? For me, that happened, what, 22 plus years ago, 1997, 23 years ago, I guess. When I came to a place in my life where I understand I'm a sinner and separated from God, I needed forgiveness, I faith into Christ, and from that moment on, I've been a changed man. Ups and downs, absolutely. Good times and bad times, absolutely. But never once has God failed me, and never will He fail me as we go forward. Jesus changed my life. I hope He's changed yours. Let's pray. Lord God, I pray this morning for those of us sitting here this morning. I pray for those who are joining us online. God, I pray that as we've looked at this chapter and looked at this mythological picture of, uh, of this cosmic, historic war that's been taking place, God, we realize that Jesus has won the victory for us. But we also realize that the battle continues. Devil has not quit. He will not quit until he is absolutely put down once and for all, thrown into the lake of fire. But Father, for us, even in the midst of hardship and heartache, we can live and we are living in victory. God, we thank you that church, your church is and will be preserved. Father, we pray that you would help us to continue to walk in faithfulness, continue to walk in victory, continue to walk in full belief of who you are and your great power, great love. Lord, I pray for those sitting here and perhaps listening online who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Maybe religious, but Lord, it doesn't go any further than that. Lord, we see in Scripture that religion's never enough. If religion was enough, Jesus would never have had to come. The Pharisees were as religious as can be, and yet Jesus looked at them and called them nothing more than a bunch of dead men's bones, whitewashed tombs. Lord, nothing but death and decay spiritually in their lives. Father, I pray for those who need a relationship with Jesus that in just a moment, you would call them to your, yourself. Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, ask you to forgive you of their sins, trust you as Lord and Savior. It's a simple prayer. Father, I pray for the rest of us, you would encourage us and strengthen us in our walk with Jesus, that you would bless us and help us. In Jesus' name, amen.